Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Jesus, the King Who Came to Die, a study of the Gospel of Mark. This dynamic, fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah, God's Son, the King, who came to suffer and die to save His people. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. As we're getting ready for this morning's teaching, I did want to remind everybody, you know, we try to put out a good number of resources each week to encourage and help people. And one of those is we have a podcast. Um, and the, the podcast you can subscribe to in either, whatever your favorite podcast app is. Uh, you can go out there and do it. The nice thing about podcasts are they automatically show up on your phone or the device that you listen to. Um, so it's good to be able to do that, and, and with the podcast, you actually get both the Sunday morning teaching, which we're about to do, and also after hours, the little uh, video that I'll be filming a little bit later on this morning uh, that'll dive a little bit deeper into one aspect of our text. So I uh, just encourage you, that way, if you're able to, uh, not able to be here on a particular week, whether it's sickness or traveling, you can always kind of keep up with what's going on in the congregation uh, and keep walking through Mark's gospel with us. With that, we're going to be diving in today to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. If you are one of the newer folks that's here or you haven't been able to come in a while, uh, we are going through Mark's gospel. Uh, here in the early verses, I'm worrying everybody because we're going through like two verses at a time and everybody is thinking Jesus will have returned before we finish, but that is not true. We're going to finish the week before he gets back. Um, so, no, we're, we're actually, it, it will pick up at this early verses. Mark is laying out all the key themes uh, that are going to be developed as we go through and follow uh, the life of Jesus. And so today we're going to be looking as the king announces the kingdom. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. As always, you can follow in your booklet. It'll be up here on the screen, but I encourage you to uh, bring a Bible, even if, if it's on your phone, which is the way mine is, and uh, follow along so you can see uh, the Word of God. So, brothers and sisters, hear now the word of the sovereign king. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. This summer, uh, Linda and I, at the end of our sabbatical, we were out in Utah. I was doing a wedding out there in Utah, and we traveled around and saw a good number of things, and this photo is from one of the places where we were. Linda wanted me to put one of us kissing up there, but I told her, no, I was not going to do that. Uh, no, we were, this is us. Can anybody guess what national park this is in Utah? Golden Spike. 
And it, why is it called Golden Spike? What happened there? Yep. Right, they, they put a literally a Golden Spike, which unfortunately is not at Golden Spike National Park. It's out at Stanford University. But it is where the Transcontinental Railroad was finished, not, you know, just an hour or two north of uh, Salt Lake City. And they finished it together there, and it's, it's a small national park there because this was a very important moment, right where we were. I actually have another picture of the, of the last railroad tie that they had done. It's really kind of out in the middle of nowhere. But I was reminded as we went there and we went into the store and they actually had the book, uh, Stephen Ambrose, the historian that you may know of because of Band of Brothers, he's the guy that wrote that. He also wrote a book called Nothing Like It in the World. And it was the building of the Transcontinental Railroad because he made the supposition that he thinks the generation that saw the greatest change at least up to that time was the people who lived when this was done. And his reason is because no matter how powerful or wealthy you were, if you were Alexander the Great, if you were Julius Caesar, if you were all the way down and you were the King of England, if you were the President of the United States, you could only travel across great distances as far as a horse could get you. So to go from Boston to, say, San Francisco took well over a month and cost a bunch of money. And actually, the quickest way was to get on a ship and go all the way down around South America and come up was the quickest way to get there. It was a long, arduous, expensive journey. But when they drove that spike in, a middle-class American could make the journey in less than a week. And so everything changed in that moment. Now, that was an important moment. And if you think about that, I mean, for thousands of years, this has been a, a limitation to humans. And of course, you think a week to get from Boston to San Francisco, we've seen that continue. But really, there had been no progress in that for millennia. And then they drove in that spike, and everything shifted and changed. Now, I bring this up because the ultimate change in the history of the world is actually the coming of Jesus. And it's what we're talking about here. And Jesus himself is, is driving in a golden spike, as it were, this morning. And he's making a proclamation that the times, they are a-changing. If I can shift my metaphor and bring in some Bob Dylan, because every good sermon has a Bob Dylan reference in it. Because um, <clears throat> my wife turned me on to Bob Dylan, and I just can't get enough of Bob Dylan. <laughs> not, not true. I love Bob Dylan, my wife, otherwise. Um, but so Jesus here is saying the times they are changing. He's announcing the kingdom. But what does that mean? And what does it call forth from us? Well, let's dive in and take a look. We are seeing here a new period in redemptive history. And Mark does this in kind of a subtle way that he'll keep expanding as the gospel goes along. Notice here, he says, after John was put in prison. Now, he's kind of putting a little bit of a mark there that we're in a new period of redemptive history. And that's because, you remember, he began his gospel by saying, hey, the prophets that announced God was going to send a forerunner. He was going to send a messenger who was going to come and prepare the way for the king. Well, Mark is now saying the messenger's job is done. He's being put in prison, and the ministry of the forerunner John is completed. We know that Jesus later on says, look, John is the last and the greatest of the prophets. But in this little phrase that John's being put in prison, we're shifting because the last and greatest of the prophets has now finished his ministry. Now the God of the prophets is on the scene. Everything is changed. 
And so the times, they are really a change in here. They really are shifting and changing because the long prophesied king and his kingdom have actually arrived on the scene. And we're going to talk a little bit more about what that means in a moment. But it's also important for us to understand the way Mark puts this. He says, after John was put in prison. Now the phrase put in prison um, there literally means he was handed over. Okay? Now, it, they're getting at the right thing. To be handed over for John meant that he was put in prison, but this word's going to be used a lot of times in the gospel. And the very next time it is used in the gospel is in Mark 3.19, where we read, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Same word, okay, to be handed over. In other words, Judas, it's listing the disciples, is the one who handed Jesus over. Jesus uses it of himself in Mark chapter 9, verse 31. And the second half of the gospel, Jesus is increasingly giving this message and saying, I'm the king, I've come, but it doesn't mean what you think it means. What it means is I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to be betrayed. So he says, he was teaching his disciples and he said to them, the son of man is going to be betrayed. Same exact word as here with what happened to John. He's going to be betrayed in the hands of men and they're going to kill him and after three days he'll rise. But it's not only used of John and Jesus, it's also critically used of followers of Jesus. In Matthew chapter, I mean Mark chapter 13 verses 9 and then 11 and 12, which is predominantly about 70 AD, but it has application to us because this experience is the same for all followers of Jesus. We read this, you must be on your guard. You will be handed over, same exact Greek word, uh, to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Then in verse 11, he says, whenever you are arrested, same word, and brought to trial. Verse 12, brother will betray brother to death. Same word. Now, the NIV is not wrong and translate this way. These are all the nuances of the word, but understand that if you were a Greek reader and you heard this, you would note that this is all the same word. And you remember oh, this is what kicked off Jesus' public ministry was John was handed over. That's how his ministry actually ended. So John is not only the forerunner in proclaiming that the king was coming on the scene, he's also the forerunner in being betrayed and handed over to persecution for his faithfulness to the king and the kingdom. And what happens to the forerunner is going to happen to the king himself. And so the king himself is going to be betrayed and handed over. And we should recognize that his followers should not be surprised when they're persecuted, when they are betrayed, when they are handed over for faithfulness to the king. And so this is a reminder right up front because we need to understand, Mark has taken the time to lay this out. The king has come. The kingdom has arrived. But he's giving us a subtle clue right up front don't mistake that to mean everything's going to be wonderful now. It, in fact, does not mean that. The forerunner who announces the kingdom, he ends his ministry because he's betrayed. He's handed over. The king that he announces, remember we've entitled this series for the entire Gospel of Mark, Jesus the King Who Came to Die. Because that is the key theme in the Gospel. I'm the king but I'm not the king who you think is going to come in and kick the Romans out and I'm riding on the horse. I actually came 
to expand the kingdom and to win you over, but I'm going to do that by dying. I'm victorious by dying. And so this is a message that Mark is giving, and it means that God's kingdom has invaded the kingdom of this world, but make no mistake, the world is going to fight back against the citizens of that kingdom. And who does that mean? You, you and me. See, and Mark is writing his gospel as he's writing this shortly thereafter, the great persecution at Rome that we all think of under Nero is going to be breaking out. Okay, and Christians are already starting to suffer, and we can think, but I thought the king had come. I thought the kingdom was here. I thought that meant, and Mark is giving us a subtle clue, no, you were, you were wrong in that. The king has come, the kingdom has arrived, but it's not fully consummated yet, and in this age, there's going to be warfare and difficulty and struggle. So, we see even now, 2,000 years later, and I have to be careful with our details, but the missionary who was here sharing last week, what just happened to her husband? He got martyred today. Not, not in Rome 2,000 years ago. Today, he was grabbed. You remember, three guys were grabbed, and two of them were beaten to death. Okay, that happens today. And Mark is telling us, look, it's what happened to the forerunner. It's what happened to the king don't be surprised when it happens to you. Now, this is instruction and comfort for the original readers of the gospel who can be confused because it can be confused. I thought everything was going to be okay. But see, this is comfort and instruction for them, and it's comfort and instruction for the followers of the king today. And let me just say, you might wonder why. I mean, geez, this is kind of a downer. It is worth it. There is nothing like being a citizen of the kingdom of God because all the stuff we sang about this morning, instead of being under the wrath of God, I'm under the blessing of God. Instead of being under the weight of my sin, I am under the forgiveness of sins. Instead of being shut out and excluded from the kingdom, I'm brought in and I'm made a citizen of the kingdom. And friends, I remind you, the scripture says to us over and over again, this life is nothing but a morning mist. This life is a breath. Life is short, eternity is long. So to quote another martyr, Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And that's the message of the king and the kingdom. So Mark is letting us know, look, I know there is suffering and persecution. Don't be surprised. It happened to John. It's gonna hap it happens to Jesus. You're going to see later in the story. And it happens to us, but it's worth it. Now, what does he mean by the, the king announcing the kingdom? What's going on here? Notice in verses 14 and 15, we read that uh, after this had all happened, Jesus goes into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And in verse 15, he says, I want you to repent and believe the good news. Now, the good news is how the NIV is translating this word that we very often use the phrase gospel. Your translation may have that same phrase and word. And you remember in the very first verse when Mark kind of gave the title of his work, this is the beginning of the good news or the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ the Son of God. That's what the whole gospel is about. So it's not surprising that since the whole gospel is about that, we find out that when Jesus comes, he's proclaiming the gospel. And in fact, if you remember as well, Mark kind of tipped us off and said, I'm going to give you a quote from Isaiah the prophet. 
And we've seen how many of these things refer back to Isaiah. Well, the same thing is true here. When the Messiah comes, the sign of the Messiah is that he proclaims the good news. He proclaims the gospel. Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, we read, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because he has anointed me, which is where we get the word Christ and Messiah from. It just means anointed one. He's anointed me to do what? To preach good news. Same, it's just a verbal form of the same word that Mark is using. To the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So again, because Mark has already oriented us towards Isaiah, we know that the Messiah would be the one who proclaims the good news, so we're not surprised that Jesus is doing this. But we know even further that he's kind of, Mark is referencing and thinking of this text, because what's interesting is I've got the word proclaim there highlighted, that second word, is an unusual word in the Old Testament. It's only used a few times. But it's the same word that Mark uses for what Jesus is doing. He's proclaiming. He's announcing the good news, which is exactly what we're being told. The Messiah is going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And there's a lot of words in Greek for proclaim or announce or speak or say. This one was almost never used in the Old Testament but it was used of the Messiah in Isaiah 61. And of course, if you know your Gospels, you're aware, Luke tells us what was the very text that Jesus first preached his first sermon in Galilee from. This text in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, exactly what I just read. It's actually in the middle of a sentence, and Jesus rolls up the scroll and stops because he's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The day of judgment of our God is the next thing, and, and that's there. But, but Jesus' focus and what he's really coming to do is to offer forgiveness for us. And so we see here, Mark is telling us, look, the teaching of Jesus is centered on the gospel. And I remind us, brothers and sisters, wherever you may go, if you ever have to move and you're looking anywhere else, that needs to be the first question you're asking regarding any church you're looking at. Not how beautiful is the building, how nice is the parking lot, do I like what they got with this? All that stuff can be okay. Are they preaching the gospel? Because what you and I need to hear week after week after week is the good news of the gospel. We need to hear the gospel of the kingdom over and over again. Okay, especially because we can expect as citizens of the kingdom, we're going to meet resistance. It is part and parcel. And so I need to be reminded of the good news that is greater than the bad news because the bad news is going to be there. So Jesus is doing this and so must every local church. And notice specifically, he uses a phrase, not just proclaiming the gospel, but the good news of the kingdom of God. So we read, In verse 14, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Now, if you've got a King James version, a new King James, you may see there it says proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And the reason for that is some manuscripts, actually most manuscripts, have the good news of the kingdom of God. The oldest ones don't. And the phrase the good news of God is very, very rare. It's mainly used by Paul. It's used by Peter once the only time it ever occurs in Mark is here in Mark 1.14. So scholars debate whether it originally said the good news of God or the good news of the kingdom of God, but in either event, it doesn't matter. We know that's exactly what Jesus is proclaiming because verse 15 tells us here's the good news he's proclaiming. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So the good news is that the kingdom of God has finally come, and he's doing it. So 
The kingdom of God, we're going to see, is going to be mentioned 14 times in Mark's gospel, and it's a central topic in Jesus' teaching uh, that we're going to discover. In fact, Mark is an a, a gospel that, I've, as I've said, is much more about action than about teaching. It's this gospel of immediacy. We've seen how often Mark likes to use the word, and immediately this happened. It's a gospel of action, but one of the main teaching sections in Mark's gospel is Mark chapter 4, which is Jesus telling parables, and the parables are all about the kingdom. That's what they're about. The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like this, where he's describing and explaining the kingdom. And of course, this should not be a surprise either, because in Isaiah, the Messiah is going to be announcing the gospel, and the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. So in Isaiah 52, 7, which also uses the word gospel, which again is a, is a rare word in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 52, 7, we read, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Same word, gospel. Who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings. Actually, the exact same word there. They just they didn't like the repetition, so they called it good tidings, but it's the same word. Who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. See, the gospel is a proclamation of peace. It is good news, it is good tidings, it is salvation, and specifically what it is, is your God reigns. It's good news to know. And remember, Isaiah in this context was actually writing to people who were exiled, Everything seemed to be going wrong. They're struggling. How can this be? Much like when John the Baptist is arrested. Much like when believers are suffering and persecuting. But the announcement of the gospel is your God reigns. You may look around. It may not look like it. Right? I mean, if I swipe all the way to the left on my iPhone right now and read the news, it doesn't look like the kingdom has come. But make no mistake, the gospel is that the kingdom has come. The gospel is referring to the reign of God. And John had done this some, but Jesus does it in a new way. What he tells us actually is that the kingdom of God, no longer that it is coming, which is always, that's what Isaiah said. That's what all the prophets said. That's what John the Baptist said. Jesus' message is no, the kingdom has already come. The kingdom has arrived. Now, why do I say he does it? There's two ways that Jesus indicates this new situation. Number one, notice there it says, um, the time has come. Or in some translations, it says the time has been fulfilled, which I actually think is better. And Jesus here is saying, when he uses the word time, Greek has two words for time. One of them is chronos, which we've all heard from like a chronometer, that's just time that just flows. There was a Greek god named Kronos. He was the god of time, okay? It's just time that marches on. There's another Greek word um, that is kairos, and they're not absolutely distinct. There's overlap, but kairos is usually used to mean more, if you want to think of it, appointed time. Kronos is we're laying track all the way across the United States Kairos is there's going to come a time where we're going to bang in a golden spike and you can finally take a train and it can run the whole way. It doesn't just stop in the middle of nowhere, okay? Everything is shifting. And so Kairos is that there had been this appointed time that the, 
the Messiah was going to come. The kingdom was finally going to arrive. And what Jesus actually says here is the kairos has been fulfilled. The appointed time you've heard about, it has been fulfilled. The waiting is over. I am here. And the second thing he says on that is actually the kingdom is near, or I would say a better translation would even be the kingdom of God has come near. I don't want to get too geeky here on the Greek stuff, but this is a perfect tense. This is not future. It's not the kingdom is going to be near. It's not even that the kingdom is near now and continue to be. No, the kingdom has come near. This has already happened. It is already fulfilled. And it means to draw near either. The, the interesting thing is, and scholars argue, the word for near can mean either near in time or near in space. And I think the answer is yes. The time that's been awaited for is here. And it's here because the king is here. The kingdom has come because the king has come. And where the king is, the kingdom is. And so it is near in time and it is near in space because Jesus is here. Now, Jesus is going to spend a lot of time describing the kingdom. And I had to wrestle through this morning whether I was, how much I was going to try and do that or whether we would take time doing it, but we're just going to kind of let it unfold with the gospel. He's going to describe what it is, but right now all he does is he merely announces its arrival. And then he's going to spend a lot of time having to undo their bad ideas about the kingdom. Now, I will, and after hours, I'm going to go through one aspect of the kingdom, which is the now, but the not yet. Why? If the kingdom has arrived, everything's not already completed and fulfilled. And there are Christians who misunderstand this, just like there were people in Jesus' day that misunderstood it. And misunderstanding that leads to all kinds of bad theology and all kinds of bad decisions. You and I do not live in a perfected world. Amen? Sin is still here. We pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. But that's not happening out there. And if we're honest, it's not always happening in here, right? So the kingdom is now but not yet. I'll talk about that in after hours, and the video will pop out on Tuesday. But Jesus is going to explain this more. But for today, he just announces it's here. And for today, there's only one thing he's really interested in when he's doing it. And that is Jesus is calling for a response to him and his kingdom. He's not unpacking every implication of what it means. He's not even unpacking all the things you and I ought to do in light of the fact that the kingdom has come. His first concern is a personal response. Notice what he says in verse 15. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom has come. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the gospel. So what he's saying is, look, all this that you've heard about is fulfilled. The king is here. You can no longer go on indifferently with your life and act like nothing has changed. No, everything has changed. And notice he does not begin where we oftentimes today might want to begin with. The, the kingdom has come, therefore you go out and build the kingdom. That, that's not his concern. What's his first concern? Repent and believe. Before you start worrying, see this is, my propensity is, oh yes Lord, I'm taking notes and I'm going to go tell this to somebody else because they need to hear it. But see what Jesus says is, 
No, you need to hear it. You need to understand. First thing that happens when the kingdom comes is you repent, you believe. We'll talk about the other later. In fact, we're going to see next week, Jesus is going to call people and make them fishers of men. We are called to go out with the gospel and to do all that. But before we do that, the first stage is we repent and we believe. And this is very, very important because, see, one of the misconceptions of the, regarding the kingdom of God back in those days was that the, you know, Jesus was going to come in and we're going to get to be in charge and we're going to, we're going to be nailing those Romans up for the glory of God. Okay, but see, we're going to discover in this, this is a very different king. This is a very different kind of kingdom. One of the uh, scholars that I read this week uh, in doing this, David Garland, uh, in his commentary said this, the symbol of God's sovereignty is not a scepter or a mace that God uses to break the bones of his opponents, but the cross on which the blood of the Son of God is shed. We need to understand that. See, I relate easier to, oh, I can pull my Mameluke out and go off and chop off some heads for Jesus? Okay, that's awesome. That's not this kind of kingdom. The sign of this kingdom, and, and we wear it as jewelry, some people, right? What, what, what is the sign of our kingdom? Remind me, what, what happens with the cross? Do I go out and use that as a weapon in a battlefield? But note that. Our sign is not a sword. It's not an M16. It's not a hand grenade, a tank, a plane. The sign of our faith and our kingdom is a cross on which the king willingly dies because he's handed over. He's betrayed. Now, I, I wish it were otherwise. Honestly, I do. <laughs> Be a whole lot easier, wouldn't it? See, I would like it if the symbol was a mace. I get to crush the enemies of God. And you can get a lot of that in Christian radio and news today, but it's not the message of the kingdom. It's not how this kingdom expands. See, as we were praying last week, this kingdom expands when our brother was martyred. The blood of the saints is seed for the church. It has always been that way. It is that way today. And it will be that way until Jesus returns. Not an easy message, but we need to understand that up front. So Jesus is like, before you go running off and thinking about doing that, we're going to see the kingdom of God has implications in all of life. But because our symbol is a cross and not a conquering implement of war, Jesus begins and says, here's the first thing, your response to me and my kingdom. We'll get to everything else because isn't, isn't it true that's the way we are? I mean, parents, when you catch one of your kids doing something, how often do you ever hear, but they did, right? It's not just my four rogues did that, right? We, we immediately, we, we were just looking in our connect group the other night in Genesis chapter three, the temptation story, right? Adam, did you eat the fruit? What was the answer? Not, not yes, Lord, thou knowest, Lord. <laughs> her, Lord, right? Eve, did you eat the fruit? What, what's her answer? The devil made me do it. Long time before Flip Wilson, right? The devil made me do it. 
That's the way we are. And so Jesus says, before we get to all the implications of the kingdom, let's start with you. You need to repent, and you need to believe the good news. And so we are called to do these two things, to repent and believe. The first one is to repent, and that word literally means to have a change of mind that leads to a change of action. It's got to begin on the inside and then work itself to the outside. And see, that has got so many implications for you and me as we sit here when the king and his kingdom comes. Because, see, we've been rebels who thought our identity was found in embracing and expressing our own desires. Isn't that, I mean, are we told that over and over and over today? Who, who I am, I need to express this and you need to applaud because it's who I am. No, it's not who you are. You are who the king says you are. See, we, we've been on, a, on a, a wrong turn all the way back from Descartes, right? Cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. No, God spoke, therefore you are. Okay, deus verbum ergo sum, <laughs> if I got that Latin right. That, that's what it is. God spoke and therefore you are. God speaks, that is your identity. And so when the king comes, we've identified ourselves with all other loyalties, all other kinds of ways that we want to think through things. But the king says, no, here's the reality. I'm the king, this is my kingdom. And you find your identity either as a citizen of my kingdom or you're at war against my kingdom. That is the chief thing. And so our identity is found in who God calls us to be. We've been rebels who want to determine right and wrong for ourselves. Is that not what we've been doing since the Garden of Eden? We pluck the fruit because we will determine right and wrong for ourselves. But see, you and I were not created with the capacity to do that. God determines right and wrong. The king determines right and wrong. And my response is to bend the knee and submit. That's what it means. That's when the kingdom comes and I repent, I recognize I even give up the right to determine right and wrong for myself because that was a right that was ill-taken. I shook the tree and took that which was not mine. And Lord, I give it back because it's been nothing but death and disaster. We have to repent because we've been rebels who want to establish our own righteousness, right? We're all like, uh, what was the name of Little Jack? You know, we sat in the corner and stuck in our thumb and pulled out a plum and say, what a good boy am I? Is that not what we spend our time doing? I try to establish that I am righteous, which is why it's not me, Lord, it's her, right? It can't be me because I'm out establishing my own righteousness, my own way of doing things. We constantly, this is why even in the church we have constantly struggled. You know, Augustine and Pelagius back in the day, there was the argument, and Pelagius' argument was, Augustine, if you say it the way it is, that it's all the free grace of God, everybody's going to be running around sinning all the time. So you can't tell them that, which is exactly what Paul anticipated when he wrote the gospel in Romans, Right? What shall we say then? Shall we sin so that grace may increase? That's what everybody, you know, hey, it's a great arrangement. I like to sin. God likes to forgive sin. This is awesome. That's what our culture says regarding the gospel because I want to establish my own righteousness. But see, the king comes and says, you don't have any righteousness to establish. If you're going to have righteousness, you're going to get it from the king. You're not going to earn it on your 
own. And so we have to repent and recognize we've broken God's law in thought, in desire, in word and deed, and we're going to have to look outside of ourselves for righteousness. See, in our culture right now, what we firmly believe is my problem is out there, and the solution is in here. The king says, no, your problem is in here, and the solution is out there, me. One's right, and one's wrong. And we have, we have to repent. We have to change our way of thinking to understand that. And so repentance is a necessary part of faith. Citizenship in this kingdom requires a change in our thoughts, desires, words, and deeds. And a reorientation, a rethinking of the entire thing that we thought life was. That's the first part. And then secondly, he says, believe the good news. So we're called to true faith and trust in Jesus and his gospel. And the word faith does not mean just mental agreement. The Apostle James tells us, you know, look, the devil understands the facts. He just hates them. I mean, he gets it. He knows who God is. He understands who Jesus is. He, we've already seen that in the gospel. He, he, he gets it far better than we do. I mean, when the disciples are stumbling along and can't seem to figure anything out, the devil knows full well he's doing it. We're going to see who's the one people in the gospel, that, that the, 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 the one group that always speaks to Jesus and knows who I know who you are. Demons. Literally, over and over again. The disciples are constantly like, so who is he? I don't get it. He keeps multiplying fishes and loaves. He walks on the water. I can't figure out who this guy is. The demons are like, oh, I know who he is. So faith is not mental understanding. Faith is an orientation. Faith is a trust. It's an active trust and reliance upon the word of the king. That when the king proclaims good news and says, I'm here, God reigns. I believe that. I believe that that I, I know that is the truth. We are called to an active embrace of Jesus, his gospel, and his kingdom. That's what faith means. So we repent and we believe. Now, what's really important about this, let me bore you with one more bit of grammar here, is that the words repent and believe are present imperatives. Okay? They're not Something like, you know, the kingdom has come near. This was not you need to have repented and you need to have believed. It's you need to be repenting and you need to be believing. Because uh, this call to repent and believe didn't just apply to the original people to whom Jesus spoke, but to every reader of the gospel. Every reader needs to repent and every reader needs to believe. And so the question that it brings to you and I, first off, is have I ever repented and placed my trust in Christ as his king, as king? Have you done that? And, and again, it is not say the kingdom has come, so make sure you get your name on the roll of a church. The kingdom has come, join the club on Sunday morning. That, that's not the call. The king has come. Repent and believe. Have you done that? Far too many Americans. If you read the news right now, you're hearing there's a lot of hand-wringing going on, you know, that the number of nuns is growing. And I don't mean the people with the habit, you know, the, the black and white thing. 
Nuns refers to people who say they have no faith. Okay, point. That group's not actually growing. It's actually a whole bunch of people who before said, yeah, I guess I'm a Christian. I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not a Hindu. I must be a Christian. I live in America. Have now woken up to the fact they are not. And they never were. Because they never repented. They never believed. They never embraced. You, you, don't, you don't get into this. I pray every day when my grandkids come up on my prayer list. My number one prayer, I want them to know Jesus Christ. I want them to be citizens of the kingdom. I want to follow them. I'm claiming God's covenant promises to a thousand generations. I'm hanging on to it because they don't have it because mom and dad believe. They don't have it because papa's a preacher. They don't have it because of any of that. They either personally respond in repentance or faith or they are at war against the kingdom. So, have you repented and believed? If you have not, please grab me, tackle me as I walk out of here this morning, and let's talk. Secondly, for all of us, because the majority of us here have repented and believed, am I presently responding to Jesus the King with repentance and faith? Remember, it's a present imperative. Means it's not, so it's not, oh yeah, I repented back in 1978. Okay, that was... When I grew up in Georgia, that's the way it was, right? Oh, yeah, man, I walked down the aisle. I was at a revival meeting. I got all weepy, you know? Never a sign that I actually did anything, but, you know, I got emotional at that meeting. The question is, am I walking in repentance and faith now? They're not a one-time action. They are a daily pattern. I remind you, you know, Martin Luther, the great reformer, actually said in his uh 95 Theses, that this was not about a one-time thing. It was a daily part of the Christian life. The entire Christian life is one of repentance and faith. So let me ask a couple of questions to tease that out when we come to the table. Am I submitting to Christ's rule by letting his word rule over my thoughts, my desires, my words, and my actions in every area of life? Is it the way I think and feel, what I want that defines my reality, or is it the word of the king? Because repentance and faith mean I embrace the word of the king. And let me be clear, as a guy who's been a believer now for 44 years, 44 plus years, this is still a daily need. It's not like, oh yeah, I've memorized a bunch of Bible verses. I can have it memorized in both the original Hebrew, the Greek translation that came out of that, I got it in English, I got it nailed down nine different ways, and then Jesus still says, but you don't actually think that way. You actually think and desire a different way. And when I do, I need to repent, and I need to bring my thought process, my desires, in line with the Word of God. And make no mistake, our culture is trying to mold you and I to do it the way we want. Everything is about, if I feel it, it must be good. Probably not for all of us. We need, we need to check that against the Word of God. Secondly, is my status as a citizen of God's kingdom an apparent in how I fulfill my vocation at work? See, we're going to get to this later as Jesus lays out. The kingdom applies to all of life. It's not, well, I repent and I believe on Sunday morning. Then I live how I want. I, I conduct my business like a mafia don. 
okay? We, we, we can't do that. If you remember, actually, in the movie The Godfather, one of the most powerful scenes ever, when Al Pacino is becoming the Godfather, they're interlacing it with, as he's in, having a child baptized in a meeting and going through it, they're interlacing with all the people he's having killed and all the mayhem that's going off. So he's there quoting the Apostles' Creed, and then here's a guy getting whacked. He's here, you know, taking his little vows, and here's a guy, you know, getting beat up. Does this apply in my vocation at work? Is it shifting and changing how I work? Because your your task at work tomorrow, who assigned you that task? God. I didn't get the call when I became a pastor. I, I had a call when I worked in a pimento factory when I was a 16 year old and had just gotten saved. I had a call when I was a midshipman. I had a call when I was a Marine. I had a call when I was a manager at Ford Aerospace. And then when I became a computer programmer, I was equally called. And in all of them, I have to live as a citizen of the kingdom. So is God calling you and saying, that area of life is not under my control? Let me throw out another one. Is my status as a citizen of God's kingdom apparent in how I fulfill my vocation at home? Is the way I speak to my spouse, it's apparent that I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. The way I speak to my children and raise them, my desires and the way I go around my grandchildren or towards my parents, is it apparent that I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God at home? Another area, is my status as a citizen of God's kingdom apparent in how I fulfill my vocation of loving those around me? Because my vocation, again, is not just my nine to five. Vocation is every area where God has given me responsibilities, and God is saying, I want to love your neighbor through you. And your task is to be a channel. I'm blessing you, go be a blessing. In every area of life. So is it apparent to my neighbors, to my family members, whatever area I'm interacting with people, is it apparent that I am a citizen of God's kingdom, that as Greg was saying today, that I'm actually on mission? I may not even get to tell them the gospel today, but I'm, I'm building bridges to get there because it's apparent I'm a citizen of God's kingdom, that I'm living a life worthy of the gospel. And then finally, is my status as a citizen of God's kingdom apparent in my involvement in a local church? Notice I had that one last rather than first because we sometimes want to do that. But this isn't just about church. But it is. Citizens of God's kingdom come together. You know, we heard last week in the country where they are and ranking government people that have come to faith, where did she say they have to meet so that they're not found? In a cave. I mean, can I just stay home and have my quiet time, me and Jesus? No. (laughs) The answer is no. You take a risk and you meet in a cave and you might get killed, but it's worth it. I get to gather with God's people. I get to worship with the people of God. Is it apparent I'm a citizen of God's kingdom? Now, what we're going to do is we're going to come to the Lord's table and I've just thrown out a bunch of questions. And in doing that, this morning, rather than 
reciting the Apostles' Creed together or something else, what we're going to do is in a moment, I'm going to you know, kind of do the words of institution, but I want you to already be thinking about this. I just listed a bunch of areas. Where is the Holy Spirit convicting you and me of sin? The King has come. Repent and believe the good news. Where's the area that the Lord is speaking? And we're going to take a moment and let the Holy Spirit speak to us. Where's the moment? Is it my vocation at work? My vocation at home? My vocation in some other area with my neighbors? Is it my involvement in the gathering of God's people? Which area is the Holy Spirit speaking? And we want to do two things. Repent and believe. Because the good news is, see, I, I, I don't find forgiveness by hiding my sin. I find forgiveness by opening up and confessing it. And we have a good God who went to the cross for us. So I encourage you, as we come to the Lord's table in just a moment, I'm going to give time for the Holy Spirit to speak. Already be meditating on that and let him speak. And it's in that light that we're going to come to the table together. And if you are a visitor here, we do believe that as long as you're a citizen of God's kingdom, you're welcome at this table. It's, this is not our table. This is the Lord's table. And so you are welcome to participate with us. For what I receive from the Lord Jesus, I pass on to you. That on the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. and When he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you are here and you are a believer, you are welcome to participate with us. If you are not, you should let it pass because this is a meal for God's people, citizens of the kingdom. What we're going to do now is I want to encourage you, and we're going to be doing both, okay? We're going to speak the word of forgiveness because this is not about salvation by works. But the Holy Spirit is here to speak to us. So in silence, let the Spirit reveal Is there any area where I need to repent? Any area where I'm not believing? And then we'll come to the table together. Brothers and sisters, if you can take the bread. Hear the word of your king. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word has no place in our lives. Lord, we come to this table humbly, confessing and repenting of our sin. Holy Spirit, we've asked you to reveal sin to us. And we refuse to make excuses or hide our sin. We openly confess to you the sin that you have revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. 
and we recognize that Jesus, though sinless, was crushed. He was broken, Lord, for my iniquity. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and it's by his wounds that we are healed. So, Lord, we give you thanks for the broken body of our King. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. And as you take the cup, hear again the word of your King. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we come to this table joyfully. For we know that the blood of Christ was shed so that we might be forgiven. Lord, we repent of our sin freely and we receive the forgiveness won for us through the shed blood of Jesus and offered to us in the gospel. So we give you thanks for the blood of Christ our King and the full and free forgiveness of sins that we receive through it. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Let's stand together and we will pray for the Lord to come and meet us because tomorrow the call will be to repent and believe. And we need the power of the Holy Spirit. But the good news is the King has come. And he gives the spirit without measure to us as his people. Lord, we have heard the call of Jesus to repent and believe. And by your grace, we have responded in repentance and faith. But we know our need for repentance and faith is not limited to this moment. We need your grace to sustain and uphold us each moment this week. So we cry out for you, fill us anew with the Holy Spirit. Lord, when our thoughts are not in line with the truth, speak to us a word of God and renew our minds. When our desires stray from your will, Convict us of our sin and refashion our wills to be like yours. And as we go out to fulfill our vocation in our homes and jobs and communities, empower us so that we might live as faithful citizens of the kingdom, loving and serving our neighbors in a manner that is worthy of your kingdom and of your gospel. Lord, we ask that you would do all of this in the name of Jesus, our glorious and our majestic King. And those who agree say, Amen. Amen. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. May his rich blessings be yours in abundance, and may you go forth and spread them everywhere this week. You are blessed. Go forth and be a blessing. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.